What's going on everybody? Drone out here with you. It is Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. How's everybody doing out there today? Now, I like to do these once a year, and it's the State of the Union address. I give my thoughts on all of Detroit's pro sports. Whether or not we get a ton of listeners in here doesn't matter to me. It's just something that I got to get done, and this is always a good point to do it because you have most of the offseason all complete for the rest of the three teams, and you got Tigers halfway through the year, so it gives you a pretty good synopsis of what things are going to be like around here. So let's get started with the Detroit Lions. So depending on the way that you look at things, glass half empty, glass half full, you might feel half full at the end of it, but half empty at the start of the year. So let's give you the outlook. We're going to do this for all four teams. We'll start with the Lions. So the Lions were flat out embarrassing to start the 2022-2023 season as they began the year 1-6 and six and had a five-game losing streak. In between being outscored by a combined 53-6 to the New England Patriots, that was 29-0, and the Dallas Cowboys, 24-6, there was an HBO season of hard knocks. And it seemed like the prospect thought that I had of Dan Campbell initially over the last couple of years was on the money. We knew he wasn't going to be a good play caller, and this team behind general manager Brad Holmes should have been much better prepared. Again, I praised them last year by the time we did one of these things, and the sense of having players who were drafted that made a difference for this team. When you're talking about the Matt Millen era, Matt Patricia, things like that, that didn't really work out all that well. But in this side, it's been a lot different. So it was a really bad start for the Lions, but they turned out to get a much better finish. It was a 9-8 and finish. They just missed out on the playoffs, but can't start 1-6 and and then go 9-8 and and expect to get in. But here's the difference in the sense of it. This is when Aaron Rodgers was still in the division for his final year. 2-0 and against the Packers and the Bears. 1-1 one one against the Minnesota Vikings. The only poor effort in that stretch were the Lions, they could have had a six-game one streak to end the year, but it was taken away in Week 16 and lost to the Carolina Panthers, 37-23. and 23. A little bit of the SOL in the sense of that was a win that you should have had. You didn't end up getting it. They would have won that one. Again, it would have been a six-game winning streak. The Lions would have made the playoffs. Still, they finished the year taking five out of the last six games, and they watched the Seattle Seahawks make the playoffs. Shout out to Cooper Hopkins before losing to Brock Purdy in the San Francisco 49ers. Purdy would go on to get hurt. Dallas Cowboys, things like that didn't really work out for the 49ers going forward, but it was over after that. To be fair, the same thing probably would have happened to the Lions. I know the fans don't want to admit it, but if it was the Lions against the 49ers, <clears throat> against Brock Purdy and everything else especially, you're taking the 49ers, no doubt about that. So, let's go through this really quickly as far as the schedule, because I want to ask you a critical question. So the Lions schedule, and I bolded the games that are non-Sunday games, with the exception of the one Thursday that you know that you get with the Packers or the Bears, usually on the Thanksgiving side, which is still in there. But let's go through it. So the Lions schedule, this is all Eastern. So they open this season on Thursday, September 7th, against the Kansas City Chiefs at Arrowhead, 8.20 p.m. And then the following week after that, Sunday, you go from Thursday to Sunday, so a nice little stretch. you got the Seattle Seahawks at Ford Field and the Atlanta Falcons. You go back on the road to play the Green Bay Packers. You come back home to play the Carolina Panthers. And then the Tampa Bay Bucks at Ravens. And then home against the Raiders. So you got an even split on the side of it for four home games and four road games. There really isn't any elongated stretches away from home or at Ford Field. It's pretty much 2-1 to one on that side at most. Week 9 is the bye. 
And then you get back into action again on November 12th at Chargers, home against the Bears, home against the Packers on Thanksgiving, that Thursday game on the 23rd. Then you have Thursday to Sunday again at Saints, at Bears, home against the Broncos, times yet to be determined, Minnesota Vikings Sunday at 1 on December 24th, and then the 30th against the Cowboys on NBC, and then you close out with the Minnesota Vikings Sunday, January 7th, time is TBD. So with the exception of two TBD times in week 15 and week 18, with the bye being mixed into week 9, you're looking at a situation where you have, again, I have these ones in bold, and don't mind the Thanksgiving one, but we'll talk about it. Thursday game against the Chiefs, a Thursday game against the Packers, Monday night against the Raiders, Thursday against the Packers, and Saturday against the Cowboys. So two Thursday games, and the sense of September 7th and the season opener and 28th against the Packers, is that going to be an Amazon, NBC exclusive type thing where it's going to be blacked out? Are you going to have the opener? As far as it blacked out, unless you are an Amazon Prime member, because if that's the case, especially off an of opener, I think you'd piss a lot of fans off in the sense of it. But what do you think? We'll just do this again really quickly because we'll just say it. Chiefs, Seahawks, Falcons, Packers, Panthers, Bucks, Ravens, Raiders. And in that sense of it, we'll just go ahead. I would say probably a loss against the Chiefs, a loss against the Seahawks. That starts you 0-2. I'll say a win against the Falcons and Packers. That puts you back at 2-2. Going into Week 5 against the Panthers. I'll go 3-2. Lions are on a three-game winning streak. I'll go even 4-2. They beat them at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They start 4-2. They lose at the Ravens, going 4-3. And and then they beat the Raiders, 5-3, heading into the bye week. Coming back in against the Chargers, I have that as a loss, 5-4. A win against the Bears and the Packers puts them at 7-4. A win against the Saints and the Bears, that's at 9-4. Will they win the game against the Broncos at home? That could be one of those 9-5, 10-4 type splits. Maybe they lose one game against the Vikings. Maybe you see 11-5. And then the Dallas Cowboys, that's probably a loss there. Minnesota Vikings at the end of it could be a win. You could see a split. So what I'm asking here is, do you see a very friendly 11-6 schedule for the Lions? Because I feel like that's a very easy number to throw out there, even for somebody like me in the sense of, I don't follow football all that closely, but at least we can tell you in the sense of it, in terms of the NFC and the competition that you have in there in the division, look, it's the Vikings, the Lions, the Bears, and the Packers. What's in front of the Lions right now? It's a Vikings team that still, for better or for worse, it's Kirk Cousins at quarterback. Yeah, they lost Dalvin Cook. Yeah, they lost Linval Joseph last year as he went to the Eagles. Adamican Sue came out of the retirement to go to the Eagles. There's some pieces for the Vikings that are no longer there. And there's some pieces for the Lions that you hope continue to improve and look to press on. And I make the case to you, this is a two-team division. And normally it it always is a two-team division. But it's with Aaron Rodgers in it. Now Aaron Rodgers is at the Jets and he's uh, bitching and moaning about being on hard knocks. And continuing to be his uh, very unique self, if I'm just going to be kind. So it really is up to the Lions and the Vikings. Look, you can talk about it with the Green Bay Packers and say Jordan Love. 
We still don't know what he is. And on the other end, Justin Fields is an absolute badass. But other than Justin Fields, what do they have on the Chicago Bears side? Yeah, you got Eddie Jackson on the other side for defense. You got some excellent corners. But what else do you got? You got Khalil Mack. He's great. But there really isn't too much to scare you about the Bears. They're still in the midst of a rebuild. So Lions fans, this is your division in the NFC North. I'm saying it right now. This is a time where you should have expectations on your plate, and you should be happy to have that. Because I know there were some fans out there that said, I don't want to play against the Chiefs at the beginning of the year. It's just not fair. We're not ready. Well, when you play against the Chiefs at the beginning of the year, this tells me one thing and one thing only. You wanted respect, Lions fans. You got it. This schedule with the, the games against the Cowboys, the Chiefs, the Raiders on Monday night, you want respect. You got to go out there and earn it. Go out there and take it. I'm tired of hearing everybody saying it's not fair on the Monday night. Look, you don't have Tyree Kill there anymore for the Kansas City Chiefs. They're still trying to move things in and out between receivers. And I understand how good the Chiefs are. And go ahead and get another Super Bowl up there because that's how damn good Patrick Mahomes is. But it's a week one matchup when you're still trying to figure out some other things. And even with the system with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, you're still figuring out things on week one. This is a good opportunity to play against the Chiefs. I'm not expecting a win. I already marked that down as an automatic loss. But if you go out there and get a win, that's one of the situations where I have 11-6 and six schedule in front of me. You go out and take one win, you can kind of move that to 12-5 and five if you think things fall out the way that it's supposed to. Does it scare me? A little bit as someone that's watched this team go, you know, uh, 0-16, 1-15, that the Lions are expected to win double-digit games and win the division. They should have won double-digit games last year if they didn't start with that horrific start of the 1-6. So, yeah, with Aaron Rodgers out of the division, and I know there are some schedule tweaks in there that the Lions fans might not like, this is your opportunity to do something. So again, we talked about this initially, but I'll throw it out there again. What's ahead? You got two separate Thursday games outside of Thanksgiving that could be subject to Amazon Prime blackouts. A Monday game against the Raiders and a Saturday game late in the season against the Cowboys to close out the year. As I've said, it seems like the Lions and the NFL are expecting some big things from this team, and it's time for them to deliver on some of these expectations. I went out as far as to say this, and tell me not whether you agree. This is the first time that Detroit has expectations since possibly 1991. I would have been four years old when they lost in the NFC Championship to Washington 41-10. to And again, let's fast forward in the situation of the Matt Millen era between Stafford, Sue, and Calvin Johnson. Do you think that group would have beat the Saints or the Cowboys in the postseason when they lost in the wild card? I never did. And I never had the situation and the expectation, even with Matthew Stafford. We know he's going to be a Hall of Famer, and he got his title with the Rams, and we know Aaron Rodgers is going to be a Hall of Famer. He's got separate awards and all that, but he's got as many Super Bowls as Matthew Stafford does. But I never had the expectations when Stafford was here that they were going to get things done. Again, granted, even for me, it's not all on him. I understand that, but this team is much better, well-rounded as far as 
offense of uh, running and passing and getting some defense done. Brad Holmes has really done a good job building this team in the trenches. And again, I will have to give Dan Campbell at least a little credit because you could have completely fallen apart after the 1-6. and six. They went 9-8. and eight. Again, they should have been a lot better. That's on him at the start of it along with the players. But you would have to hope now that things need to get on the right foot to begin the year. Outside of a couple games with the Chiefs and the Seahawks, it's going to be tough to start the year, but you cannot start 1-6. and six. You do that again, there's going to be some seats that get hot on those uh, on the asses here. It's going to get hot. So expecting big things out of running back Jameer Gibbs. He was the round one pick 12 out of Alabama out of the Crimson Tide, and Jack Campbell, the linebacker out of the Iowa Hawkeyes. They pick 18 in round one side of it. Other notables in the draft this year. If this continues that same trend, that would be absolutely fantastic for Brad Holmes. In terms of drafting, he's done pretty damn well. And people have gone out there and they've played and they've done well through this draft. And that's how you have to get it done, especially in the NFL when you have so many damn injured bodies all the time. But Sam Laporta, the tight end, pick 34 at a round two. Brian Branch. Uh, round two, pick 45, he's a safety. Hendon Hooker, the backup quarterback out of the Tennessee Volunteers. Round three, pick number 68, some other notables. I do want to throw this out there before we close up shop with everything here with the Lions. I just want to make this note. So quarterback Jared Goff, you know, from the Rams and the Lions in that trade for Stafford. So last year, 29 touchdowns, 7 interceptions, his second most scores since 32 in 2018. And his fewest interception totals with seven at just a 1.2 rate. So his lowest rate tied for the fewest interception that he's ever had twice was seven. 4,438 yards, 250 short of a career high. I said, I love this trade at the time for Stafford when they moved into L.A. in picks. And I still love it because at the other time, you have Jared Goff, who is a really good franchise quarterback. They wanted him to be that. Again, everything with pressing matters in L.A., I can kind of understand why they did it because Stafford was a little bit more ready to go for all the years that he's played. But at the same time, considering what Detroit has done with Goff, if you think the Rams would kind of just give him a little bit more time rather than just rush him right out the door, they wouldn't have had to sacrifice all these first-round picks. Who knows? Maybe they don't win the Super Bowl, but at least they're not in a situation where they are right now because it seems like it was so one-dimensional. And now the 28-year-old gets to play his contract through most likely. No sense for these two options for the Lions to decline a 30 and $31 million options through 2025 because honestly, I think Jared Goff, I know some people are going to disagree with me on this, but in that back half of it, he was absolutely excellent. And throughout his time here in Detroit, yeah, there's been some inconsistencies, but I could say he's been very good. And in that back stretch of the second half, he was absolutely excellent. So good to excellent on that side. With Stafford, honestly, I know you have the Cleveland Browns putting the shoulder back in, throwing the touchdown. You've had some moments against the Cowboys where you kind of feel like you got jobbed with the Calvin Johnson thing, but at the same time, the Cowboys could have some of their same things. But who cares? It's the Cowboys. I know that's what people will say, but... Again, that's the way it goes sometimes. If you're the Lions, you got to fight through these things. That's what I always talk about. I know the fans are going to say, that's not fair. You should call the game correctly. Well, if you're absolutely freaking dominant all the time, the refs will give you more calls and you'll earn more respect and you'll get schedules like these as far as going through the season. So I never felt that way with Stafford. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. He was kind of the golden boy. He was not even all SEC when it was at the, it was a third team side of it, but he was the number one pick. 
Again, good quarterback. He's going to get in the Hall of Fame. Aaron Rodgers is going to get in the Hall of Fame too. But Aaron Rodgers has the same amount of Super Bowl wins that Stafford does. And Jared Goff, I think he's pretty damn good. He can get the job done. You finish out the last two years, 2025, you give him the 30 and $31 million. I know it's a lot of money, but he's a good quarterback right now. And you're building this offense. Figure it out two years later. Maybe that's what you got Hinton Hooker for. And again, if you don't like that, you got to go into next season and figure it out because Goff's not going to be here all the way through or you're going to be paying a quarterback in his mid-30s at that time to try to get the job done. So we've gone through the schedules, and I've given you some of my lines, no, lines thoughts. I see an 11-6 and six schedule. Before I close this out, let's just go through the Vikings here really quick. So they're going to start on Sunday against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You figure that has to be a win. And then they have a quick turnaround Thursday against the Philadelphia Eagles. I'll mark that one as a loss. So one and one. And then week three, Sunday, September 24th, home against the Chargers. Maybe that's a toss-up game. I'll mark it as a win. Two and one. At Panthers, three and one. Loss against the Chiefs, three and two. A win against the Bears, four and two. A loss against the 49ers, four and three. Should be a win against the Packers, five and three. A win against the Falcons, six and three. Maybe a win against the Saints that'll put you at seven and three. A loss against the Broncos, seven and four. Maybe they'll drop a game against the Bears, seven and five. Win against the Raiders, eight and five. Loss against the Bengals, eight and six. And then you have the Lions, Packers, and the Lions. This will put you in a situation where if the Vikings take care of business here against the Lions, that uh, they'll be in the playoffs. They probably should beat the Packers both times, but I see it possibly as the Lions winning this division. Maybe that the Vikings will essentially go 10-7, and seven, the, the Lions go 11-6, and because it ends with Lions at Lions, so away from Lions, away from Packers, at Lions. So two home games and then at Lions at Ford Field to close it. So what do you see on that side? A 10-7? and seven? Maybe an 11-6 and six like the Lions? Should the Lions have to go 12-5? 11-6, 12-5, will that get it done? Am I, am I overestimating the Vikings a little bit? I'm just giving them a little bit of credit, at least giving them 10-7. and seven. I think it sounds about fair. But what are your thoughts? Because it's going to be a two-team division. And let's think about this here really quickly in the sense of it. you got four quarterbacks in this division. Maybe we'll start from worst to best. Give me your thoughts before we close out here. So Jordan Love, Justin Fields, Kirk Cousins, Jared Goff. Do the Lions have the best quarterback in the NFC North? Is Jared Goff the best option in the NFC North? Because I feel like he might be. But what are your thoughts? Facebook and Twitter, at John Ryanot. As always, let me know. So, let's move on here to the Detroit Pistons. Again, this show's not going to be as long as the NHL trade deadline free agency frenzy stuff that I do with Cooper Hopkins, but this will still be pretty comprehensive because we've got four teams to cover. So, for the Pistons, let me give you my initial thoughts, if you hadn't read them, for my write-up on the draft from Thursday, June 22nd. And then we will break down after the initial thoughts. We'll go against the roster construction. I'll tell you what's available there. And I'll leave you with a critical question as well. And let me know what you think on that side. So let's start it with the Pistons. So this was from the Brooklyn draft there from thir Thursday, June 22nd. So the Detroit Pistons have brought an entirely new coaching staff alongside Monty Williams from the Phoenix Suns. 
The hope is alongside the picks of general manager Troy Weaver that this basketball team will start making strides and showing improvement on the floor. Coming off a league-worst 17-65 and record and falling to fifth place in the draft order. Again, that's as, fall, as far as you can fall. Everything that could have gone wrong did for Detroit. Cade Cunningham was injured very early in this season, and Detroit would routinely give up 140 points or more in given nights against any opponent. Is that fair or unfair? Because I think that pretty much captures the season in a single graph. But let's continue. And the thought process that things must improve because the organization is truly at rock bottom, Detroit was able to draft Oscar Thompson with their original fifth pick out of the G League Overtime Elite and Marcus Sasser from the Houston trade from the Memphis Grizzlies on that side when you know, players normally get picked and moved around. So Oscar Thompson's just 20 years old. He's six foot seven inches tall, about 220 pounds, probably played the small forward spot. And he has the frame to be a small forward who can do a little bit of everything. I'm not including the Holly Berry quote that Trey Weaver used to describe Thompson's game. He said, when you see Holly Berry in the mall or when you see her in a movie, she looks hot. So essentially for Oscar Thompson, when you see him in the G League and you see him in the NBA, that should transfer his game's going to be good. That's kind of what he was saying. A little confusing, but just throwing it out there for a clarification sick. But I can tell you that the organization believes he will be a lethal part of this team for years to come. I've heard an NBA comp to Andre Iguodala in the Philadelphia 76ers days. If that would be the case, Tom Sib would end up being a 40 points per game scorer who can rebound, assist when necessary, and defend at an elite level. The hole in his game would be similar as well, as he isn't ready to knock down the three-pointer in an efficient clip. But here's where I usually go off on this when you're thinking about Josh Smith again. We're still paying the man. I've never been one of those, and maybe I'm in the minority. Let me know. To think that long-distance shooting is something that has to be included inside the toolkit. If Thompson turns out to be another version of Iguodala, then it should be easy to surround him with knockdown shooters. That's the point. Shooting's pretty easy in the NBA. That would be a franchise player that the Pistons have lacked since the original Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, and Grant Hill. So that means he can elite get to the rim, dunk all over you, play defense, have speed, have size and frame, knock down some mid-range chances and be versatile. Maybe he's going to work on his three, which you know he's going to. He's still just 20 years of age. So that sounds like a franchise-level player to me if he can continue to work and improve. Again, we'll see what he can do in his rookie year. Marcus Sasser's on the small side of the six-foot, one-inch frame, but his main skill set is shooting off. Detroit was one of the worst teams in the league in that area, but even most importantly, as mentioned earlier, they couldn't defend at all. Sasser could be one of those guys that helps lock down the perimeter. That's nice because they need it. So what's next for the rotation? This is just my initial thoughts, but we'll get into it officially. It's difficult for me to tell you who should be the starting five for the Pistons in 23-24 when the season begins in October. Is Kate Cunningham going to be healthy? Yeah, that's a critical question. Because if he isn't, that moves Jaden Ivey into the primary role, maybe slides Killian Hayes at the shooting guard spot. Here's an idea. I'd love to see Sasser and Hayes in the bench backcourt, form a lockdown pair as rotations move, because something's got to be improved defensively. I think that's a smart idea by myself. Under construction, Detroit has a ton of small guards, and even with as good as Boyan Bogdanovich is at shooting the ball, there isn't enough room to start players like Hayes, Ivy, Cunningham, Thompson all at once. But I still believe in the young front court of Wiseman, Bagley, and Jalen Duran. I don't care if they can't knock down three-point three shots consistently. 
They are very big, they can run the floor, and they can defend. Here was my initial outlook. I'm choosing hope and progression from this new coaching staff to mold these players on the entire roster to progress and get at least 30 wins this year. Defensively, the Pistons have to be better, and there has to be a sign that this young team can accomplish some things going forward. I'm always the patient type, but if the Pistons win 25 games or less this year, Weaver and Gore should be feeling pressure. The Pistons as a whole are a championship franchise with pedigree, and at least they used to be. I haven't felt that way since 2008. It's been a while. Again, I'm talking from you know 2004, 2005. Yes, I know Rasheed Wallace left Robert Ory wide open, and I'm still miserable about that. It should have been back-to-back championships. But this team with the six straight Eastern Conference Finals, kind of like the Celtics did with the Eastern Conference Finals, but they don't have their title just yet. But this was always consistent. I'm saying title just yet in the terms of Tatum and Brown era. But this Pistons team... And this franchise, in between their three championships, this is a proud franchise. They've not acted like it with some of the moves that they've made. But I am going to choose progression and hope on that side of it. This is my initial outlook. But let's move on to this. And then we will close with something crazy. So roster construction. I think it's easier this time to go ahead and start with the bigs because you know what you have. And I'm going to circle four of them in particular. And note, I put the ages here. You'll get my initial notes and everything else when it's uploaded to Hopeless Sports Guy and Spotify. But again, make sure if you go through these notes in particular, keep note of the ages that I've marked. So let's start from James Wiseman, the Golden State side of it at the trade deadline. 22 years of age, 7 foot 240. He was the second pick in the 2020 draft from Golden State. 10, re- 10 points per game and 6 rebounds. I want to see his potential exercise, but he will be a free agent in 2024. So this is someone that can already get you probably double-digit points and rebounds just off his talent alone. And considering he's got size, he's got speed, and he has an ability to maybe at least make mid-range shots, if he knocks down some threes already and kind of does some damage in there in the paint, then you would feel pretty good about it. So let's move on. Marvin Bagley III, again, just 24 years of age, 6'10", 235. He was the second pick in Sacramento in 2018. Again, Sacramento could have had Luka Doncic. The Atlanta Hawks could have had Luka Doncic. But it was the Mavs that moved up and stole him because nobody wanted to take him. He ended up being a franchise superstar. But Bagley should still have some of that talent. 12 points per game, 6.5 rebounds. He's going to be a free agent in 2025. Jalen Durant. Just 19 years of age, he's still very raw, as he was picked last year in round one, pick number 13 from Charlotte, but acquired from a trade on that side, as he usually does, 6'11", 250 on that side for Jalen Duren. Already in his rookie season, nine points per, nine rebounds, one assist, one block. He'll be a restricted free agent in 2026-2027, so you still got plenty of time with Jalen Duren. And you already consider him like the Ben Wallace type in terms of a lob threat, athleticism, defense. He can do a little bit of everything. It was a good start for Andre Drummond. And as Andre Drummond said, I turned myself into a $100 million max player and I put myself out for the league minimum because I didn't work hard enough. Hopefully that doesn't work out that way for Jalen Duran because it seems like he's oozing with potential. And then the final big man that I threw in here, Isaiah Stewart. 
He's only 22. He just signed a four-year extension at $60 million. And I don't know why, again, just for the short-sightedness of it, we know the NBA cap is going to shoot up, and we know that NBA players are making money hand over fist like crazy. It's different. The money continues to go up. It's a popular sport, probably second to the NFL, maybe third in terms of soccer, NFL, and then basketball on the side of it. But my point is this. That number, especially in the NBA, 4 to 60, about 15 per until 2028, that's essentially a drop in the bucket. And for somebody like Isaiah Stewart, that had 11 points per game, 8 rebounds, an assist and a half on that side, he's continued to prove every single year, albeit a little marginally, he needs to make a little bit of a leap, or he's going to be more of a bench rotation, like a 9, 10, 11 type of guy in terms of coming off the bench. But you have four bigs. Again, let's go over the ages. 22, 24, 19, and 22, and a four-year 60, that's a great signing for Trey Weaver and company on that side because you can never have enough bigs. And I think these guys, all essentially between these four, are going to have a good rotation piece of what's going to work, what do you enjoy, what works for you on the floor, who hits more shots, who can get you some rebounds, who can run down the floor. Who can help vibe with these point guards, shooting guards, small forwards? That's going to be the big reason in the sense of who works out for you. Because let's just be honest. I don't care in the sense of these four players who makes that starting lineup. Again, all we want to see as basketball fans, if you go across the whole league, but especially if you're a Pistons fan and God bless you, there's been some tough times here in the sense of it. You just want to see markable improvement. That's what I keep trying to hammer home on this side. But what do you think? Whoever shows the most markable improvement, you need to see markable improvement among all four big men, across the whole team especially, but across all four big men, whoever is good at the time is going to be able to run the floor, and there's going to be some injuries. You'll be able to move guys in and out. Yeah, do you wish Isaiah Stewart would be a little bit taller and not just more of a 6'8", 250 side, a little bit small, but the fact that he can spread the floor a little bit, it gets you about maybe a 34% three-point shot at best, but I think that's continuing to improve. I like it, because when you're walking into 11 points at rebounds and about assists and a half, hopefully you can get you a steal or block here and there. I like the deal. doesn't seem like a lot to give up, but between Wiseman, Bagley, Stewart, and Duran. I think you're in a good spot with a very young team. Now, here's a situation I was glowing last year for Cade Cunningham. And now, I'm not going to sit here and say you know negative things about Cade, but we do have a narrative that's out in front of it. So for the 21-year-old, round one, pick one on that side of it just the other year, 6-7-2-20 for Cade Cunningham. Again, he played just 12 games last season. It was a big reason why the Pistons only won 17. But Cade, over the last two seasons, again, it's an 82-game season, so possible 164. He's only played 76. He hasn't even played a full calendar NBA season just yet. So I have a critical question now. Who is Cade Cunningham? And I feel like I have to say that now. Is he a guy that can knock you down the mid-range chances and be an all-around point guard that can set players up, maybe hitch an occasional three and is dominating at the free-throw line, and when he gets to the lane, it's probably a basket? I don't know, because I haven't seen him.
Didn't see him all last year. I saw him a little bit in his rookie year. I saw when he stepped back on Nikola Jokic and put him on his sliding shoes and knocked down some threes and looked pretty goddamn good, to be honest with you, in the rookie year. And I'm glad to see that he did well. And he won the uh, Clorox Award for the top rookie. I think it was sponsored by Clorox. My goodness, don't eat those Tide Pods on that side of it. But when you're thinking about it, he was an all-star game MVP for the for, uh, the juniors and the rookies. You know, the sophomore, rookie, sophomore game. He was the MVP of that side. He looked pretty good in his first year. Didn't get to see him at all in the second time. And I'm still waiting because all I care about is seeing him on the court. I'm still waiting for a point guard like Chauncey Billups since 2008 before the trades. So Jaden Ivey, because Kate Cunningham spent most of the year injured, 21 years of age, 6'4", 195. He was the pick number five last year at around one, a dynamite rookie, 16 points per game, four rebounds, five assists. Does this move Cade to shooting guard? Because he's got the size. Jaden Ivey still got some size at 6'4". I think probably give or take they throw a couple extra inches on these players more so than I think so. But I don't know if Cade is quite 6'6". I'd probably say 6'5", maybe Jaden Ivey 6'3". But that's a legitimate question, because if you can play off the ball on that side and maybe still have Cade do the primary point guard duties, but you want to have Jaden Ivey out there because from what we know about him, when he gets in the lane, it's absolutely over. Yeah, a little bit inconsistent at from three. He's still a rookie, though. 16 points per game with four rebounds, five assists. I'm taking that. I think Jaden Ivey had a pretty good year last year, and I hope that he can continue it. Here's a couple situations where you're probably not going to agree with me, but I'm going to make my case. Killian Hayes, it'll be his third season, but he's still just 21. 6'5", 195, he was the seventh pick in the 2020 draft for Troy Waver when they went in between Isaiah Stewart, Killian Hayes, and Sadiq Bey. Sadiq Bey is no longer on the team on that side. So how much did that first round rush to rebuild that first year work out? Because Killian Hayes is the only one here, and he's kind of only in a bench role right now. 10 points, 3 rebounds, 6 assists, a steal and a half. That's what you like. You can bring some defense. I don't want to see him leave as a free agent in 2024. I know a lot of you guys do. But I think Killing Hayes still has a lot of use as a defender. And if his game rounds out offensively, people are going to stop fucking complaining about this guy. I think it's pretty simple on that side. Killian Hayes can do everything defensively. He's a big guard at 6'5", and he can shut some people down. He's a good defender on that end. If he can round his offensive game into shape, and let's say he signs a similar deal to Isaiah Stewart, would you be upset if the Pistons signed Killian Hayes to a four-year $60 million, about 15 per? Because I sure wouldn't. He'll be 22 years of age by the time this it'll it'll be done, and you're locking him into a four-year deal at 26-27 where he can set himself up to get paid again if he proves out. What's wrong with that? You feel like 21 years of age, you've still got so much primed, untapped potential. That's what people forget about this team. Just on the guard side of it, Killian Hayes, 21, Ivy, 21, Cade, 21. We've even gone through the big men. And between Bagley, Bagley's an elder statesman at 24, for Christ's sake. But Wiseman, 22. Same thing for Stewart. Jalen Duran, 19. This is a very young team. 
that should be able to build together, and I feel like Troy Weaver should do his best, and yes, we need Monty Williams and Jared Jack and company and all the bench coaches because, again, when you think about John Beeline, he's no longer here as part of the shooting coach out of West Virginia and Michigan. He's supposed to help them improve. Well, they didn't fucking improve, so you you got to move on from all of that. But in the sense of it, elder statesman, I know I make a joke here, Monte Morris, he's just 28, 6'2", 183, he was a backup point guard, roll more so, but... Still averages 12 points per game for his career, about 5 assists, and he's close to a 40% shooter from distance. You feel like that's got to be a big-time improvement on that side from Corey Joseph, don't you? That's a good pickup there for Detroit, considering it was just second-round picks. You still got Boyan Bogdanovich. Again, he is the elder statesman at 34. He's got two more years, so he'll be done by 36. You'll think it'll be done at that point, and his best years will be behind him. Small forward slash shooting guard, 6'7", 230. He's 34 years of age, 22 points per game, four rebounds, two and a half assists, free agent in 2025. And Alec Burks, again, Alec Burks, you need that veteran to come off the bench and score 6'6", 215, 13 points per game, three rebounds, two assists, 41% from distance for Alec Burks. So when this team really needed three-point shooting, you can rely on Bogdanovich and Burks and Joe Harris. Again, you'd like to see more talent come the other way. But Trey Waver moved the stuff for expiring contract. It's about another, what, $15, $20 million in Joe Harris. This comes off the books next year. He's 31. He's been often banged up. But if he's healthy, he can definitely knock down some shots. And in the mix, you got to throw out there the 20-year-old Oscar Thompson, who we talked about, and 22-year-old Marcus Sasser. Off the bench, you still have Isaiah Livers, who's a small forward. He's 24. So think about it again. Bogdanovich, 34. Burks 31, Joe Harris 31. Again, Burks and Harris are on expiring deals. Bogdanovich still one more. But again, we talked about it. Morris, kind of an elder statesman, 28. Hayes 21, uh, Ivy 21, Cade 21, Wiseman 22, Bagley 24, Duran 19, Stewart 22, Livers 24, Thompson 20, Sasser 22. This is a very young basketball team. You've got to be able to improve and continue to move things on. Because if you can't do that, that's what you brought in Monty Williams for, for the 6 and 100 side of it. I know it's a lot of money, but that's what you brought in an entirely new coaching staff for. Again, I'm not too happy that, in the sense of it, when you think about the former coach of the Detroit Pistons, that he's going to be up there with Troy Weaver on that end. Dwayne Casey to be an exec, executive assistant to the general manager. Well, what's Dwayne Casey fucking assisting? Is he trying to get donuts and coffee? Because if he's still doing player development, that's got something you got to keep him far away from. Because under Dwayne Casey, this team did not get any better. They got progressively worse. Yes, they got younger and got some picks. But the players that were young didn't show any improvement. And that's what you've got to see. So let's close out with something crazy. Because here's something that I thought of. So in terms of Rick Carlisle, again, 2001 to 2003, he's an excellent coach. We know that. But the Pistons were desperate to win at the time because you had Chauncey Billups, Rip Hamilton, Tayshaun Prince, Rashid, and Ben Wallace. So they brought in the veteran Larry Brown because, again, he only stays a couple of years at a time, not because of the dependent diapers, but he's very old. And in the sense of it, he wears out his welcome very quickly. If you don't win now, you continue to move on from him. But the Pistons... 
In between 03 and 05 for Larry Brown, they made it to the finals twice. They won in 04, and again, I'm still haunted from Rasheed Wallace leaving Robert Ory. Wide open in Game 7, but the Pistons blew that game. They're up by double digits. They lost at the AT&T Center in San Antonio, and the Spurs won the title in 05. And I'm going to tell you a legitimate story. Now, I brought this up before, but I'll make it really quick. And the sense of after that, with the trade to Chauncey Bills to Denver Nuggets in 2008 for Allen Iverson, it made me cry. Legitimately on that side, my uh, again, I wouldn't have been more than 24 years of age at the time. And again, you don't don't like to think that a man's going to show tears too many often. But on the way to community college, before I ever met my uh, fiance and all that in the math class side of it, when I heard the news on the local side of the ticket that uh, Chauncey Billups and Allen Iverson that trade was done, I legit cried on the way to class. Because I knew that everything was going to be over. And I knew this team was going to go into a deep, dark rebuild. Whatever people want to say about Allen Iverson, that was all in the past. And the Pistons have absolutely been a dumpster fire since 2018. But let's continue that narrative. Because this is a critical question I want to ask you. Here are the head coaches that followed from the downturn from 2008 to the present day. Make sure you're sitting down for this one because it's a doozy. Michael Curry from 08 to 09, winning percentage 476. John Kuster from 09 to 11, winning percentage 348. Lawrence Frank, 2011 to 2013, winning percentage 365. Maurice Cheeks, 2013 to 2014, 421 percentage. John Lawyer, man, that's a name. 2014, only lasted 32 games coached, 8 and 24 with a 250 winning percentage. Stan Van Gundy. Tom Gorris was the owner, and SVG was also the GM. It was the Rose Griffin era from 2014 to 2018 because, yeah, we just want to back into the fucking playoffs. 463 win percentage. Dwayne Casey, Gorris now is the GM in the Troy Weaver era. Young talent that needs developing. Geez, this lasted a little bit too long for Dwayne Casey, maybe even for Troy Weaver for some of you, and I can understand that. 2018 to 2023, a 315 win percentage. Now this brings in the Monty Williams era. And over the last 20 years, I'm going to ask you this question. Is Monty Williams the best coach that the Pistons had in over 20 years? Because I'm talking about Rick Carlisle from 2001 to 2003. So let's go from that era. So Rick Carlisle, Larry Brown, starting an ending from 03 for Rick Carlisle. It's 2023 now on July 18th is the best coach, Monty Williams, for the Pistons in the last 20 years. Because I happen to think that it's overwhelmingly yes. But let me know your thoughts. Alright, so we've gone through half the show officially. I gave you my thoughts on the Lions. I gave you my thoughts on the Pistons. I feel like they need to at least win 30 games to show you that improvement. And continue to move the course, because now Monty Williams is the new head coach. So let's get into it in the back half. We're going to start this back half with the Red Wings. Again, some of these notes will be in from the free agency special on that side of it with Cooper Hopkins, but I do still have a lot to get through because I do want to leave you these full Red Wings thoughts. So we won't spend much time with Gustav Lidstrom, uh, Brogan Rafferty, Matt Luff, Christian Fisher on that side of it because those are mixes in between depth forwards and for the Griffins and maybe seventh side of it for forwards or back end D for the wings. Maybe be healthy scratches. But Clint Costin, again off the buyout for Steve Eisman and Ken Holland when 
Steve pretty much just wanted to get Clem Cost and Kalari Yamamoto went to the Seattle Kraken. Clem Costin signs a two-year, $4 million until 2025. Yamamoto goes to Seattle for one year, 1.5 on that end. Clem Costin could easily be a back-end, bottom six forward that can give you some grit and sandpaper and can score. He looked pretty good for Edmonton. I think they're going to miss him on that side. He was thinking about going to the KHL in Russia, but he does sign with the Red Wings on that side for two years, $4 million. I think that'll be a good one. So Philip Sedina, 23 years of age. Again, that's another one of their Ken Holland era. Contract termination and will give up $3.65 million and save the Wings $1.825 per the cap to 2025. I'm stunned, honestly, because, again, as we talked about, it's a wasted first-round pick under the former GM Ken Holland alongside Dennis Cholowski, who was 20th. Zadina had 28 goals in 190 NHL games with the team and was brought into this draft to score it. Do you remember Zadina's quote? I'm going to make other GMs pay by filling up the puck and opposing nets. No, that didn't work out. 28 goals, 40 assists, 68 points, and a minus 51. Zadina went on to sign a one-year $1.1 million for the Sharks and try to get a fresh start. So good luck to Philip Zadina. But the only one outside the Hollander that's even worked out there is Michael Rasmussen, who is now finally rounding into form. I know some people want to throw him into the 4C situation. I think that's way too low on the depth chart. I think Rasmussen is the big body side of it to try to replace somebody like Anthony Mantha, who I think is already doing a better job of it. He's more suited on a second-line wing. Take your pick on that side. So goaltenders that are brought in. Alex Lyon, 30 years of age. He had 15 games play with the Panthers in regular season. 9-4-2, goals against 9 total save percentage. Signed a two-year, $1.8 million deal, 900 k to the cap to 2025. He might be in the Griffin side of it. James Reimer might be your backup. 35 years old, 43 games played, 12-21-8. goals against 890 save percentage and three shutouts. Again, the save percentage sounds a little bit low, but he was playing with the San Jose Sharks. Signs of one-year, $1.5 million. But this is much closer to probably 280 goals against as far as his numbers. Again, that'll go way up even with a team like Detroit because of playing with the Sharks last year. So as I say, what do you think? One of them probably goes in the minors. Huso does need a backup. Again, with Nadelkovic, that didn't work out. On the other side for Grice, that really didn't work out all that well. you got to figure out something. I think Alex Lyon and James Reimer, I'm assuming James Reimer is going to win that backup job. Alex Lyon will be back there. And maybe you can bring in Alex Lyon for next year if Sebastian Kosa is not ready. My hope is that he will be. But the main priority is this. Ville Husso needs an adequate backup. I do not want him playing 60 to 65 games. you got to be able to keep him fresh because I thought Ville Husso did very, very well last year. He just got burned out big time. So the one signing, and I said this last year with Ben Sherratt, and I'm going to say this again, Steve Eisman's not perfect. I never said he would be. The Jacob Verona thing didn't work out on that side, and Ben Sherratt didn't like it, and now Justin Hall. I really don't like this one. 31 years of age defenseman, doesn't bring anything offensively. Two goals, 16 assists, 18 points. His numbers look better than they are because he played with a very loaded Maple Leafs offense. I think he's going to be a best sixth or seventh defenseman, but he's probably going to start on your second pairing, so get ready for that on that side of it. Three years, 10.2 million, 3.4 until 2026 to be exactly that. Two goals, 16 assists, and 18 points. Those goals might go up a couple. Those assists might go down a couple on that side of it. Maybe about 
14, 15 points at most for Hall. That's all I really see him getting. Just like the Trot signing last year, you have $8.15 million tied in between both defensemen who don't bring much to the table across the board until 2026. I don't like the move there for Steve, but again, it's a right-handed shot defenseman, and I know I've heard Steve Dangle say this on that side of it. If you want to go ahead and tell your kids to play in a sport and they marginally even like hockey, be a right-handed shot defenseman because at this point you're going to get paid. And with uh, numbers like that, it's hard not to think that he's wrong. So that's more like it. I'll throw it out there with Daniel Sprung. Again, 26 years of age. Don't know if he's going to wear the number 91 because they're still waiting for Chris Illich and company. Again, Mike Illich and the family, Marion, they really didn't like the fact that Sergei Fedorov left the Anaheim Ducks and the Columbus Blue Jackets. They felt slighted because he wanted more money, and he, he fucking well should have got the money. But we didn't want to give it to him, so he moved on on that side. But he was very much part of the three cups in between 97, 98, and 2002. I want to see his number in the rafters. One of the very best of all time, and on that side of it, even more so than Eisenman Lidstrom, you would think Fedorov, the offensive numbers, that's your primary guy. You got to get his number in the rafters, and I hope Steve can get it done. But for Daniel Sprung, number 91, 66 games played, 21 goals, 25 assists, 46 points for the Seattle Kraken last year at a plus 13. Whether it was with the Washington Capitals from a couple of years ago, I think Daniel Sprung, even between the Caps and the Kraken, he slides into a bottom six safely for Detroit at one year's two million. He's a very productive player no matter where he goes. And I see those 46 points between the 20 goal, 21 goals, 25 assists. I see something that's very similar for Detroit. Maybe even like 18 goals, maybe like 18, 19 assists. That gets you right around to his numbers anyway. And I don't think you really have to worry about Daniel Sprung. He's going to give you exactly what he's going to give you. So a massive one year, 4.125 signing for defenseman Shane Goss to spare. Again, he's another one I think that falls into the safely in the bottom six. 30 years of age, 75 games played, 13 goals, 28 assists, 41 points. Who's going to be able to provide some offense and stabilize the bottom six pairing? He had 82 points for Arizona in two seasons. If he can get somewhere between 35 and 40 points, just like he did in between the Arizona Coyotes, I think that'd be really sweet. And in that sense of it, do you want to throw your back end defense to be uh, Lundstrom and Goss to spare? Will you throw Hall on the back end side of it? Because if you mix Hall and Trot, I think I might uh, blow my brains out on that side of it. But you you have to kind of figure it out. Because you think your top end line for Detroit is safely Woolman and Sider. And if Woolman continues to approve, and then for fuck's sake, you have a top end first line defense. And you can mix in Mata and Edvinson still on that second line. So that will leave you with Trot and Hall, which I hope is not a third line pairing, but you still need spot there for Gostas Bear. And uh, Lidstrom needs to play sometimes. So if you mix in and out Hall, if you mix in and out Trot, and you mix in and out Gostas Bear, I'd like to see Gostas Bear be a stabilize in the bottom six. I'd like to see him always play. But if you mix in and out Hall and Trot with Lidstrom, I think that sounds pretty good if you go in between Sider and Woolman and Mata and Edvinson. I, I would like that as far as the top four side. But here's another spot where I want to make a case. And let me know whether or not you agree. Making a case for JT Comfort. Fans can be angry. And again, I get to skip some of these notes again because we get to talk about the big signings. 
and there was already some big signings. We're talking about depth. Again, that's you got to make a team, and that's what people don't understand about it. You're expecting C. Weisman going into year five now in the sense of it. We talked about it last year with Cooper Hopkins, and I thought we both hit the nail on the head. If you're expecting Eisman to get out of the way of guys like Jimmy Howard or Jonathan Erickson or some of these other pieces there that are all stuck on the back end, Justin Abelkader, who they're still paying for, Franz Nielsen, who they just finished paying for, it was an absolute nuclear disaster for Steve Eisman to take over. This team is absolutely screwed. And the fact that Eisman could not make trades and make moves in the free agency until 2024 tells you the absolute garbage that Ken Holland left him with. He pretty much bolted to Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, and look what they're doing over there. Yeah, they made the Western Conference Finals the year before, before they got swept by the Colorado Avalanche, but that's their ceiling with the two best players in the world. It's Ken Holland's job, and it should be monumentally easy with the two best players in the world to subjugate everything else to make sure that they can win a cup and give the most depth. He's not doing the damn job, and that team's going to continue to get progressively worse if they can't figure it out right now. And what the worst part is for them, they could lose McDavid or Dreisaitl in a couple more years when the clock's going to continue to tick. And if you're not going to show them that you can continue to build a winning product, which you can't do in the salary cap era, Ken Holland, and that's why you had Jim Nill here, that's why you had Pat Verbeek here, kind of makes me wonder that they're making the moves because Ken Holland's loyal, he's loyal to a fault. But when you have to try to build a team in a cap era, he's proven time and time again that he can't do it. And if he does end up winning one, with McDavid and Dreisaitl, and he'll go into my comments section at John Ryan on Twitter and YouTube and see, John, I told you I can do it. Well, I said, I'll, I'll tie back. I said, you should have fucking been able to because you have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. So that's all I'm going to say to him. But let's make a case for JT Comfort. Again, as we said, fans can be angry at Steve Eisman for certain situations, but I think that's been very short-sighted. So here's the situation, and we knew for Debrinket, maybe on that side of it, a nine or ten million dollars, maybe a first, and maybe a cider or a Raymond or something mixed like that. That was the initial thought, and we weren't sure what the moves were going to be. But here's the situation for Eisman right now. It's true that a nineteen point four million dollar cap hit is tied in between the trio of Dylan Larkin, Andrew Kopp, and JT Comfort. The argument is that you could do better with a forty goal scorer in the mix that Detroit needs, and yes, we'll get to that. I still see Detroit as a first-round exit with that at best, but the money is going to centers who can play multiple positions in all situations with a 200-foot game. Here's what Eisman's trying to do. He's trying to lock in on smart players like JT Comfort. Five years, $25.5 million, 5.1 until 2028. 17 goals, 35 assists, 52 points, and a breakout year, and I understand the breakout year can be with players like Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen. Well, I get it. Val Nachuskin as well. And I'll even grant you, because of that, you might end up instead of 52 points for 35 to 40 points for JT Confort. But I can guarantee you're not going to worry about him on the ice. You could do much worse than Larkin, Comfort, Cop, Rasmussen pairing. I don't think Rasmussen will be on the fourth seat. At least I hope not. You would think he'd be on the second line center side. You can mix in Robbie Fabry as well. And again, Joe Valeno, if they want to bring him back there. But after the foot stomp on Nito Niederreiter at the Worlds, I really don't want to see him play anymore. I don't care. I think he needs to be gone. But you could do much worse than a Larkin Comfort Cop situation, Uno Dos Trace, and you can mix in Comfort and Cop between the two and three side of it. 
So you're locking in players. Yes, it's a lot of money. Yes, they talk about Larkin. I don't know if he's a 2C. A cup for a cup or probably only 3C is the best. But these are all 200-foot players, and these are guys that you can put in there that play defense. They can swap wings, especially with Cop. Comfort and Larkin, you want them locked in at center because they can win you some draws, but especially Cop plays everywhere. Fabry does the same. This is a team that's pretty good all the way across the board, and even with the Debrinket signing, even with some of the depth stuff before we get into it. This is a situation where I think Detroit's developing themselves into a Vegas and Seattle light, knowing that you have four lines that you can roll out there that can all have propensity to score and be dangerous. So when you go out there and lock down line one or two, you're not screwed at that point. So here's what the fans don't want to hear. So stopgap isn't what they want to hear heading into Eisman's fifth year on the job, but I've all documented as we talk about what he inherited. And this team is in so much a better place now than it ever was. Look, the, the cupboards and the everything else have been stocked with prospects. I know Zabrango was moved on, but he was nothing more than AHL depth at best. Again, it's hard to say at just 22, but he's been struggling in Grand Rapids. Dominic Kubalik, yeah, that's going to hurt to miss him out there, but you did get Alex Debrinkit. But you're developing in there, minus a Jack Eichel and a Matty Beneers, who again, thank you for Cooper Hopkins with that jersey, with a four-line attack. There's depth here, and no prospects are going to be blocked. Look, if Marco Casper, Redvinson, or some of these other guys go ahead and make the team Wallander, Bergren, they're going to be here on that side. All these other moves don't dictate the fact that they're going to take up a roster spot. It's continued to be sprinkled in most year, and the back-end players and forward prospects are still just 20 years of age. They're coming up the pipeline. So I wanted to keep this in the notes for prosperity purposes just to let you know how I feel before we got into the biggest move of all of it. This was before this happened. So I said after this season, Detroit would have over $25 million in cap space with the cap also going up over the next couple of years if they didn't trade for Debrinket. Honestly, I, I threw this out there in the notes. I hope the Eisman is done making moves. Because with the $25 million, the Red Wings were in a great spot to do damage again next season. Now $8 million still and likely $23 million left next season with the move being made. That was if he didn't feel comfortable I'm making the move with Debrinket or it was too much of a turn because look, let's go into the negotiation room here really quickly. If you're Steve Eisman and you're thinking about it and you're talking with Pierre Dorian on the other side, we know Steve is cutthroat negotiator and he doesn't bend on any sort of will. He probably went up there with Pierre Dorian and said, look, I'm open to make this move, but if you go ahead and you talk about Lucas Raymond or Edvinson or Mord Sider and other combinations with multiple first round picks, I'm out of here, and this is done. So you're either going to give me what I want, or this deal's not going to go through. I think that's pretty much how it went. And Detroit didn't have to give up a lot, but we'll talk about it. So Alex Debrinket, the power move, the Farmington Hills, Michigan native, comes home, 25 years of age, 27 goals, 39 assists, 66 points, and a minus 31. Therefore, Ottawa, I do feel like that's going to get much better, and that's not indicative because Ottawa is a very young team in the mix of 20 to 22-year-olds. That's why they signed Claude Giroux last year to try to spice things up, but when they made the move for Jacob Chikrin after slapping the Red Wings off the back-to-back -back and taking them out of the playoffs. They fell off hard. But DeBrinket signed a three-year extension, so you got his fourth year because you got the year from Ottawa. He's over here now, but three more years after that. So DeBrinket's here for four years. So four years, $31.5 million, 7.875 until 2027. Hell, that sounds a lot better than the 9 and $10 million that you thought that he was going to get, didn't you, on that side? 7.875, that's a pretty good cap hit on that side of it. 
Career 450 games, played six seasons, five with the Blackhawks, one with the Sens, played 82 games four times in his six seasons. I think that's big because he's not a big guy. 5'8", 178, 187 goals, 186 assists, 373 points, minus 45. His lowest output was 18 goals. His most that he's had was 41. He's done that twice. Eisman Delk Kubalik. Prospect defenseman Donovan Zbringo, along with a conditional first this year and a fourth. The first might end up being the better of the two between the Boston Bruins and the Detroit Red Wings, whoever finishes with the best pick. That's what they'll get on that side of it. Again, there is a situation. It's highly unlikely, but it is lottery protected. So if the Boston Bruins fall into the lottery because they lose, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but let's say Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci are tires and the Bruins fall off a cliff. It's top five lottery protected. So the pick wouldn't go to last year, and that means the Red Wings in 2025, at that point, if someone falls off again, the Red Wings could essentially get a top five pick in 2025. If that goes to the case, probably not going to happen. They will give up their first and fourth, most likely, in between Boston or Detroit in order to get Debrinket with Kubelik and Zabringo. So here's the situation with Debrinket as well. His lowest point total of his career to date in a season was 45. Kubelik had 45. That was in 75 games played. That would have been third on the Red Wings team stats this year. Perron had 56. Larkin in 80 games played, had a breakout season, he got his big contract. It happens a lot in contract years. 80 games played, 79 points for the Red Wings captaincy. This is a huge signing, but to be honest, uh, tell us your reservations and if expectations need to be adjusted with Alex Dabrinkit. Because look, we can go ahead and we can measure out some lines in between cap friendly and say, how do you want to adjust that first line or what do you think? So let's go left, center, right. What sounds fair to you? Debrinket, Larkin, Raymond? Do you want to do Debrinket, Larkin, Perron? Because that could be a good first line. I, I like that line. But in the sense of it, who goes into your second line? Because if you throw Raymond in there, you got to throw Perron in on the second line. That could be Comfort or Cop. And then who do you want to mix in there? Rasmussen on the second line? That could be a decent line. And then your third line on that side, if you have Comfort or Cop, let's say it goes to Cop. So Fabry, Cop, and you can mix in Fabry at center if you want. You can mix in Cop. Then who do you want to throw on the back end side of it? Daniel Sprong. That's not a bad third line. And then if you want to go down four on the side of it, there is some depth in there, whether you want to go in between Christian Fisher or you want to mix in Rasmussen at one time or you want to go Joe Valeno if he's still here. So the first and second lines look pretty good, but here's the situation. I don't know if that's enough. I do think the Red Wings will be better. Look, I'm going to go out there and tell you this honestly. I was hopeful last year that Detroit could be competitive to around March. They got around that point last year before Ottawa pretty much took the doors off on that side of it. This year, into 2023-2024, I say the Red Wings hold the wild card spot through March. Close toward the end of March, maybe a couple weeks into March. And they stay pretty good before they fall off into April. That's where I feel like they're going to be. I feel like the Red Wings will miss out this year. 
But could they be in the playoffs in 2024-2025 in the following year? I'll say yes. I'm preparing myself in the following year for this team to make the playoffs and for me to call playoff games with Cooper Hopkins. Again, we were able to cover a lot of Flames games. He's going to do the due diligence and uh, do the best friend side for me to help me cover some Red Wings games. I know he's going to be happy to do so on that side of it, but I'm going to be asking him for that because I'm ready to do that in 2024-2025. I say they miss out right now, but I will say, like Cooper said, and I'll throw this out there because I'm leaving out the water wings and I'm trying to play this a little bit safe. But I'll agree with Cooper on one thing. I know he said it the year before where the Red Wings may be making the playoffs. And it was pretty cool to see them play some competitive hockey throughout the year. They're going to be better. And the sense in between Gostaspare and Sprong and Comfort and Debrinket, those are huge signings. Especially the Debrinket side. You know that was a big one. That's the, the impatient fans that try to get, I want to get Steve fired and he's not doing enough and they're just treading water. And what the hell, where's the expectations? Why aren't the wings good when they don't think about, you know, what happened or Ken Holland and how much time it took to alleviate and fix all of those things? This is going to be a much better team. And here's where you can agree with Cooper Hopkins. If you go ahead and you take the Red Wings lightly, I think you're going to put yourself in a world of disservice here. And they could do a lot of damage. I just don't think it's going to be enough. So, in the 2023 side of it, there were 11 draft selections. So Nate Danielson, he signed. He was the top pick, pick number nine, the centerman, out of the Brandon Weekings in the WHL. I know some people say that that was a little bit high. His numbers were really good. Again, we brought that in the Hopeless Sports Guy stuff before and the sense of for a team that it was really just him. He did really well. He could score, he could assist, he could play a two-way game and do everything. But Axel Sandin Pelica, he fell to 17, the defenseman out of Sweden. He looked really good in the World Juniors. Again, I can't base everything off the World Juniors, but I love covering all that stuff with you guys. He looked great. In the second round, he had goaltender Trey Augustine, a defenseman Andrew Gibson, and the second round as well, Brady Cleveland. It was pick number nine, four, eight, nine, and 14 in the second round. And then you move on to... Noah Diver Nielsen, Franz Nielsen's brother on that side, Larry Keenan, Jack Beenan, the defenseman, Kevin Becker, the goaltender, uh, Rudy Gimmond, and Emmett Finney, the center out of Camlo's Blazers in round seven. Those were all the picks for the Red Wings. In total, 11 picks, two centers, two forwards, five defensemen, and two goaltenders. Who knows if Trey Augustine from the Michigan State Spartans will compete with Sebastian Kosa. That would be cool to see, but you want to see Kosa kind of develop into Vasilevsky. Again, I know my cousin a little bit short on that. I, I'm not. I, I want to wait and see what Kosa can do. It takes some time to develop, and that can be okay. He doesn't have to be here next year, but I'd like to see him compete in the Grand Rapids side of it and compete in for training camp for it next year. So for the regular season standings before we close out, I want to just talk about a couple of things from last year. So in the Atlantic, you had the best team of all time in the Boston Bruins at 65-12-5 and in the regular season, 135 points. They won the President's Trophy before they lost to Florida in the first round, four games to three. You had the Toronto Maple Leafs, 111 points. They won a series before they lost to Florida, 4-1. They got railroaded. Tampa Bay Lightning lost to Toronto, 98 points. They were in the same spot they were last year, third, but it seems like they're losing depth. The Florida Panthers and the Atlantic got WC2. They just snuck in. If they were in the West, they never would have got in. And the WC1 was in the Metro side for the New York Islanders. And the Islanders had 93 points. So maybe, just maybe, if the Red Wings get into the playoffs, you think they have to get at least 95 points this season to get in, maybe 96-97. 
because it seems like everybody else in the East is continuing to get better. I know Montreal's got a little bit to do with David Reinbacher, the defenseman, but they did get Alex Newhook. I know Dominic Kubelik, they lost to Brinkett with the Ottawa Senators, but you are getting back Josh Norris, the Oxford, Michigan native. Buffalo Sabres want to continue to improve with Tage Thompson. Florida Panthers, they're going to start the season off the men, but they tried to kind of make some moves slowly there with Oliver Ekman-Larsen and a bunch of one-year deals. But you are going to have Kachuk and Ekblad on the men to start the year. They did lose Rekko Gudis. And on the other side, the New York Islanders, you still have Ilya Sorokin, who you signed to a long deal. The New Jersey Devils still want to prove that they're there. The Rangers, you know, they're going to get their spot. They're probably going to be stuck in the Metro. But if we focus on the Atlantic where the Red Wings are, and I'm trying to throw some of these names out there to you, in terms of even the wild card, if we go back into the Metro. The Penguins, with Kyle Dubas, they made some good moves. Will they get in? Will the Islanders retain a wild card spot? Will the Panthers retain a wild card spot? So what does that leave you? With the Bruins, the Maple Leafs, and the Lightning. Maple Leafs, I probably see them right at the two spot or the one spot. They had 111 points last year. I could easily see them at the one spot. I see the Boston Bruins falling off a little bit, especially if they lose Krejci and that side of it and Patrice Bergeron. Tampa Bay Lightning, they're losing a lot of depth. We talked about that in the free agency frenzy side of it. You still have Vasilevsky. You still have Hagel. You have Point. You have Kucherov. You have Stamkos. You have Hedman. Nick Perbix had a great year. Some of the big names, Eric Chernak, they're all still there. But after all the big names, the depth and the secondary goal scoring, everything else falls off hard. We were talking about losing Pat Maroon and Alex Kalorn and Pierre Edward Belmar and Corey Perry. Just in a few this year, that's tough on that side. In Tampa, we know that they can dominate up front, but I feel like they're going to be losing some pieces here where they could possibly be a wild card team at worst maybe even out of the playoffs. I don't know specifically, even though Cooper and I said so. I don't know if it was going to have a hot take, but we're just trying to give our initial thoughts for all the players that were lost. If they go through some injuries with Point, Stamkos, and Kucherov with all the depth they lost, then yeah, you might see that happening. With Vasilevsky, Brian Elliott's no longer there. Who's going to be the goaltender if Vasilevsky ends up getting hurt? And that's something to think about because he never gets time off. So I think with some injuries, Tampa Bay could easily find themselves in a wild card spot, or worse, maybe even out on that side of it. Does Buffalo slide in? Does Ottawa continue to find potential? Or does Detroit slide in? Because it's going to be tough. I think that they're going to be a borderline team. And for a team, I'll close out with this and the old standings. Columbus Blue Jackets were the worst in the East with 59 points. They had injuries, but now you're bringing in Mike Babcock. You got Adam Fantilli with Kent Johnson. You got Johnny Gaudreau there. You got Patrick Laine. You got Zach Kerensky. You got some other good defensive pieces that you brought in there with Ivan Provorov and company. I think the Blue Jackets from 59 points in the Metro, they're going to take a big swing. I'm not going to say that they're going to get in the postseason, but I feel like they're going to make some noise, and they're going to do a lot of damage this year. Otherwise, Yarmo Kekalainen probably loses his job, and going to that second year, Babcock might be out. There's a lot of pressure there for the Blue Jackets. I think they make a big swing. So, trying to make a case to make the playoffs, I throw that out there. I think the Red Wings just miss out, depending on not whether the Pittsburgh Penguins get in to claim a spot, the Islanders hold on to it. You talk about whether the Ottawa Senators or the Buffalo Sabres, that's going to continue to get tough. Montreal is getting better. All the teams in the East are getting better, so I think it'll be tough. But in the 24-25, I want to see the Red Wings get in, and I expect them to. So, Here's a schedule consistency before we go into the Tigers. So for the Red Wings, 
Nine of the first 13 games are against playoff teams from last season. The Pittsburgh Penguins and the Calgary Flames just missed. That's including out of the 11 out of 13, they just missed. But here's the opening schedule in terms of it. This is the first 13 games. And a majority of these are playoff teams. I will have the opener against the Devils. That might be with Don Tottingham or that might be myself for the Oakland University side of it. But Devils, Lightning, Blue Jackets... Penguins, Senators, Flames, Kraken, Jets, Bruins, Islanders, Panthers, Bruins, Rangers. That is a hellacious, hellacious opening schedule for the Detroit Red Wings. I would like to see the Red Wings in 13 games. And I think this is probably being hopeful, even with the Brinkett, even with... Uh, Comfort, even with some of their signings with Gossip Spare and Sprong. Out of 13 games, and let's see if I can do my math correctly, a 7-6, and six, an 8-5 and five side, I think that's pretty hopeful for Detroit on that end. Because I understand the Jets are a team that is in a little bit of a rebuild, but with all those moves for Pierre-Luc Dubois to be able to go ahead and get Kupari and Ayafalo and Gabe Villardi and that pick in there, they're better than they were. I think they're going to come out with gangbusters, especially at the beginning of the year. You don't make all those moves at the beginning of the season and the time to be able to sell off with Scheifele and Hellebuck. You want to see what you can do right now, and if worst comes to worst, you do it at the deadline. Penguins have got a hell of a lot better in terms of Kyle Dubas. You want to be able to surround that core before you're done with Crosby, Malkin, and Latang. Blue Jackets, as we said, to continue to make that push, I think that they're going to be a lot better, and Detroit won't beat them uh, three out of four times on that side of it, or two out of three times that they played this year. And the Sens, with Kubelik, I think he's going to want to feel some of that there. That's still a very good team. When you put Josh Norris back in the fold, that's going to be a problem. We already know how good the Devils, Lightning, Kraken, Islanders, Panthers, and Bruins could be twice on that side of it, not to mention the Rangers. So let's hope for maybe a 7-5, uh, and 8-5 and uh, five side of it there for Detroit in the mix between those 13 games, and hopefully in between that 8-5 and five be more like it on the side of it, or a 7-6. and six. But what say you? Because that's a tough start. So we'll close this out there on the show with this, and we'll do this with the Detroit Tigers. And I feel like this has been a good pace to show because we'll get at least about an hour and a half so this is right at the halfway marker. This is off the first win of the second half part of it because you got a series win against the Rangers or against the Mariners, excuse me. And then you went ahead and you played the Kansas City Royals. You won the first game last night off a comeback. You went three to one with Kilbadu scoring a couple runs in the eighth inning. It was, I think, what twenty-five games in a row going in the eighth inning that the Tigers didn't score a run. Well, they did so last night. They won three to one. Look, I understand the Kansas City Royals are about forty games below five hundred, and they have the second worst record in comparison to the Oakland Athletics. But you still got to be able to get the job done, and you need to win those games. And that's what Detroit's got to do. They got to try to win, get three more games at Kauffman before they continue to move on with this series. But as going into tonight, before the game at eight thirty. Five and a half games back are the Detroit Tigers. They're sitting at 42 and 51, so they're just below 10 games before 500, just nine below. Minnesota is uh, 48 and 47. We can update that now in the notes because the Mariners took a game from them. Cleveland is 46 and 48 on that side, two games back. Riley Green hitting leaders for Detroit. 
I put a few names out there, Riley Green, the 22-year-old center fielder, outfielder, 295 average, so he's close to a 300 hitter, uh, 6 home runs, 20 RBI, the only problem with Riley Green, he only played 58 games. Spencer Torkelson played all of the season pretty much, 91 games played, the only problem with Spencer Torkelson, the 23-year-old first baseman, middle infielder there, 227 average, you'd like to see him improve it on that side, 12 home runs, 46 RBI, for Spencer Torkelson, Kerry Carpenter, 25-year-old outfielder, usually plays in the corner side of it, 277 average, 11 home runs, 28 RBI, 51 games played, so he's missed time. Matt Veerling's missed some time as well. The 26-year-old outfielder, 271 average, 7 home runs, 26 RBI, 72 games played. So Kerry Carpenter, Matt Veerling, uh, some of these situations there have been good, especially for the Matt Veerling side for Scott Harris. Look, you do what you can do on that side. The Nick Maton situation didn't work out, and that was the part of the trade there for uh, Gregory Soto in the mix in between the Philadelphia Phillies. But bringing in, bringing in Matt Veerling, he's been excellent for everything that you could ask for on that side of it, and uh, he's been really good. The one last uh, appealing uh, fuck you from Al Avila was Javier Baez before he left for his nine years of terror the 30-year-old infielder likely isn't going to opt out this season, and why would he? Because he's due $25 million per until 2028 otherwise. 220 average, which is absolutely atrocious. It's even worse than Spencer Storkelson, who's been struggling. But at least he has 12 home runs and 46 RBI. Javier Baez, just 6 bombs, 44 RBI. And for a guy that's supposed to play excellent defense, I don't see it at times. I see some uncharacteristic errors. Yes, he's got speed on the base pass, and he can get you some steals. That is something that he is very above average on. But he's got to improve that average. Or maybe it'll be the same thing with A.J. Hinch. Sit him down for a couple weeks, get him back into that bat rack, and stop, stop having him chase sliders 15 feet outside the zone. You need his bat, and you're stuck with him because he can opt out, but why would you? When you get $25 million per until 2028, why the fuck would you opt out? You're going to go ahead and take that money because no one else is going to give you that type of deal. So Jonathan Scope, unfortunately, he was DFA'd. He struggled all this year. A 31-year-old middle infielder, 55 games played. He had 213, 7 home runs, 37 RBI. Maybe he doesn't have it anymore because a couple of years ago with Jonathan Scope, boy, was he excellent. And Nick Maton, as we said, part of that trade in there with Soto. With Maton, he struggled badly. He won't be here. 26 Years of age, middle infielder, 160 average, 7 home runs, 25 RBI. Nick Maton will find himself on the scrap scrap heap. Jonathan Scope, hopefully he can find a new home. And Javier Baez, you're stuck with him. So pitching leaders, Eduardo Rodriguez. Here's a situation where he can opt out. And I think Eduardo Rodriguez should because the Tigers got to trade him right now. Eduardo Rodriguez, 30 years of age, he'll be owed over $16 million per until 2027 otherwise if he doesn't, but he's too valuable to lose for nothing or keep for no return on a rebuilding team because it's not going to get much better other than that. 13 games played this season on the mound, 5-5, five and five, 270 ERA, 76.2 innings pitched, 59 hits, 23 in runs, 18 walks, 81 strikeouts, and a whip just at one. Exceptional numbers for a team that is not very good. We knew they weren't going to be good this year, but again, I'm not going to sit and talk shit about the Tigers and the sense of it. They're just nine games below 500. I know the division is complete garbage juice, 
But this Tigers team has been way more competitive now than they've ever been in the nine years under Al Avila. And I give them credit for that. But Eduardo Rodriguez, you're about two weeks away from the trade deadline at the end of July. you got to get it done. Whether or not it's the exact return that you want to get him completely off the books and that's $16 million for a team that essentially you're not going to get much after that. I think that's the right move to make and they need to do that. Tyler Holton, I want to give him a shout-out as well for the Tigers. 27 years of age, the relief pitcher. He mixed some time there between Florida and Detroit now in his second season. 31 games played, 0-1 record, but a 181 ERA. 49.2 innings pitched, 34 hits, 10 earned runs, 15 walks, 44 strikeouts, and his whip is under 9 at .99. He's been excellent. Look, I understand for All-Star representatives, it went to Michael Lorenzen, and his ERA was probably closer to 4 I thought it could have easily went to Tyler Holton if it went to those that were paying attention. This uh, rookie pretty much has been exceptional here for the Tigers in the relief role. And I don't think he gets as much credit as he deserves. He's been one of the better pitchers, not only in the American League, but in baseball as far as relief. But here's the pitching yikes, and there's a lot to get to on this side. They've been bad. And I think a lot of this has to also stem with the mix of losing Matt Manning or losing uh, Casey Mize or Tarek Skubal. Tarek Skubal is going to pitch tonight in terms of injury, but when you're losing a lot of those guys, sometimes you get guys that do not often pitch, and you would not expect them to do so going forward. So Joey Wentz, I hope that this experiment is over. Again, I wish this guy well, but it's just been awful this year. 25 years of age, 16 games, played a 1-9 record. 6.78 ERA, 71.2 innings pitch, 86 hits, 54 earned runs, 31 walks, 66 strikeouts. His whip is an atrocious 1.63. Again, that's walks, hits per innings pitched. You want to get that to one or below if you're going to be elite, maybe within the 110 side of it. To be decent, 1.63 is completely awful because you're giving up about two hits, two walks inside per innings, you're going to give up a lot of runs. And that's what Joey wants to do with his 678 ERA. Matthew Boyd, I know he's dealt with a lot of injuries. It was curious to see why the Tigers brought him back, but at the same time they wanted for Matthew Boyd, who's normally just a fifth starter at worst, or fifth starter at best, that's all he could ever be. He couldn't be that now. Again, he's injured again. 32 years of age, 15 games played, 5-5, five and five, a 545 ERA, 71 innings pitched, so just about the same as Wentz. 69 hits, 43 earned runs, 25 walks, 73 strikeouts, a 1.32 whip on that side. Alex Fiedo, 27 years old, 6 games played, 1-4. He's down in the minors of the mud ends. 6-9-80 RA, 28 innings pitched, 28 hits, 23 earned runs, 24 walks, and 28 strikeouts, a 1.8 whip on that side. But again, 6-9-8 ERA. And Spencer Turnbull, we know about the no-hitter. A couple of years ago, but 30 years of age, he's just not been healthy. Seven games played, one of four record, a 7.26 ERA, 31 innings pitched, 37 hits, 25 earned runs, 15 walks, 24 strikeouts, and a 1.68 whip. So Wentz, Boyd, Fiedo, and Turnbull, again, Manning has just come back now, and Tarek Skubal is about to make his third start. He's thrown two scoreless four-inning outings. He's going to try to do the same against Daniel Lynch tonight, who dominated the Tigers last time in his scoreless six innings. But if it wasn't for some of these injuries, 
you wouldn't see as much of Wentz, Boyd, Fido, and Turnbull. And considering the way that they're going, I know you're still waiting for Jackson Job. Hopefully that's not another one of those middle finger parting gifts out of high school there from Al Lavila, but he's still only 19 years of age. You still want to see what the high schooler can do out of the Florida side of it. I hope that he can come up in a couple of years. We know that Max Clark is 18 years of age. And that uh, side of it, he's a 5 tool player for Scott Harris that they like for the third pick for the Tigers. You won't see him for a while. So hopefully maybe for Wentz, Boyd, Fido, and Turnbull, as we said with them in the injuries, and between Manning, Mize, and Tarek Skubal in 2024, you think the Tigers pitching staff could be exponentially better. They have been a lot better right now, as we mentioned, under Scott Harris than they ever were under the nine years of El Avila. Scott Harris has done a great job considering this team needs three years just to get off the mat. Miguel Cabrera is 40. He is in the final year of his $32 million hit against the cap. I know there's no salary cap technically in baseball, but that's $32 million that you could differentiate elsewhere. Not to mention $15 million from Eduardo Rodriguez and $25 million in terms of Javier Baez. So if this entire team was brought back without Miguel Cabrera, the payroll would still be $96 million. So Miguel Cabrera is off the books next year. And it would still be a $96 million organizational Tigers payroll. If you're talking about even getting rid of Eduardo Rodriguez of the 15 side of it, rough math would be about $81 million. And uh, you're not paying anything. So here's something else I want to throw out there. The Baez deal for Javier Baez, it hurts. But you shouldn't be allowed to make an excuse if you're Chris Illich or if you're Scott Harris, because I want Scott Harris running this team and not Chris Illich. He just needs to walk away and let Scott Harris do all the work. But if you think about it, this shouldn't be an excuse because by 2026, when you think the Tigers get off the mat in about three seasons, they'll have already cleaned house and the prospect pool should be developed and streamlined to the point where this team is going to start to do some damage. Bias at that point in 2026 would have just two years remaining on his deal. And at that point, if he's still here, you would think the Tigers ride it out. Unless you can find a team to take his deal now from the trade deadline where the Tigers would likely retain about $10 million of the 25 that he's owned until 2028. Again, you'd have to eat a little bit of that cap, but the Tigers are still really rebuilding. But by 2026 and three seasons, you would think the way Scott Harris is continuing to move and this team has been more competitive than you would have expected, that everything else could be more streamlined. Baez would have just two more years by 2026 to 2028. But you can go ahead and try to try to find some cap eating for now with another team. But the only thing I want to see the Tigers get done right now is get rid of Eduardo Rodriguez. He's a great pitcher, but this is the best he's ever been right now with his numbers. Get into a contending team. Get what you can for him. You clear the $15 million off the books. Somebody's going to be able to make the move. Eduardo Rodriguez. Look, I know he's not Shohei Otani in terms of even the pitching side of it, but Eduardo Rodriguez is someone you can throw in at worst at the three and four spot and get it done in your rotation and continue to propel you forward. He's good, and I think the Tigers need to get something for value for him. Otherwise, you're stuck with him on a rebuilding team that you're still waiting at least at least for three more years. But between Mize, Manning, and Scooble, you just want to see them healthy. You just want to see them pitch and continue to improve, because when you have to pay them, if they show the improvement, they're young enough, pay them. I feel good about it. Scott Harris. So again, third overall pick from about a week and a half ago. He signed the 18-year-old out of the Franklin Community High School side of it in Indiana. Out of high school as the number three pick in 2023. And Harris goes on to say that the, the term five-tool player gets thrown around quite a bit. 
but he believes that it's thrown out because of players like Max Clark. Players like him don't come around too often. He can literally do everything, and he's already put himself to being one of the top prospects in Detroit's pipeline. We understand that might not mean so much because Alavila didn't leave much to be desired, and even when you had guys like Isak Paredes who were good, or Eugenio Suarez in the back end with Dave Dombrowski, or some of the trades with David Price or J.D. Martinez, he fumbled all that stuff. But even with Isak Paredes, and I know it was a bad situation with Austin Meadows with the anxiety and all that, but Isak Paredes has done pretty good with the Tampa Bay Rays. He could have looked still pretty good here, but you moved on from that on that side of it. So I know the prospect pool, again, it shouldn't be talked about as much, because of what Evie Love left, but that's Scott Harris's job to replenish it. And in between signing Zach McKinstry and in between bringing in Matt Veerling from the trade, this team has already looked better than the nine years under Al Avila. So if you want me to rant and rave about the Tigers like I did last year under Al Avila and all the dumpster fire crap that he did when he completely burned this team to the ground, kind of like Ken Allen did against Steve Eisman on that end before he left to Edmonton, I can't do it anymore because this team is just nine years on nine years. Nine games under 500, three years away, but nine nine games under 500, three three years away from the prospect pool streamline. But they're competitive now, and I don't care how bad this division has been. The Tigers are competitive now, and if they do their job against the Kansas City Royals, maybe earn this sweep or maybe take three out of four, you can go into at least the August portion where the Tigers have a chance to win this division and compete. And I, I feel a whole lot better now than I ever did under Al Avila. So no matter what happens this season... Don't stray from the plan. Continue to build this pool. In the offseason, you got $32 million cap hit coming off with Miguel Cabrera. You know that for a fact. And if you want to go in from the trade, let's say Eduardo Rodriguez does get done and nothing is retained and that's completely done, you have essentially $47 million off the books. I understand Javier Baez is a lot, about $25 million on that side of it. But no excuse to not spend money because even with Miguel Cabrera, just only Miguel Cabrera coming off the books, that's a $96 million payroll. There's no excuse to not spend money on the Chris Illich side. Let Scott Harris do his work. Let's continue to add the pieces and uh, fit in and piecemeal while we can, while we wait for the rest of the prospects continue to build under Scott Harris's watchful eye. We saw what he did with the San Francisco Giants. It's stabilizing over 100 wins. I know they lost. They got screwed from a strike that wasn't a strike. They lost in the wild card to the Dodgers side of it, but they won over about 108 games last year. I'm already hopeful for this 2023 season. This team's been way better to expected. And if you expect me to talk junk about the Tigers right now from the Scott Harris's job, I can't do it. He's done a good job right now. This team should be in the basement with the Kansas City Royals and the Oakland Athletics. They should be right where the Athletics are. But the Tigers are finding themselves just five games out of the division. I understand the division's bad, but this team is way better than expected. And I have hope that the Tigers can continue to do something if they continue to move that prospect bill going forward. So we talked about the Lions, the Pistons, the Red Wings, and the Tigers today. And we got this done in about an hour and a half. I feel good about it. Let me know what your thoughts are if you missed any of the show. It's going to be uploaded on Spotify alongside with the notes probably within the next hour. I encourage you to check it out. You'll leave me your thoughts, and you'll let me know in between the chat side of it which one of these teams in Detroit is most likely capable of winning a championship by the end of the decade. There was only a couple votes split in between the Lions and the Red Wings. I kind of think you guys got those votes right. 
But I will uh, talk to you soon, and uh, we'll get into some more baseball games and everything else as well next week. Started to get some of that play-by-play going, but I do want to close out the show here really quickly and just say this, like we did with Cooper Hopkins and the free agency frenzy. In the sense of it, the NHL beta window, I believe that's going to be open at the end of July as far as the sign-up. The end of August will be the official opening for the NHL 24 beta. I will leave my review on it. I'm going to go ahead and review this stuff on the PS5. Again, I'm expecting it to be cross-platform on the side of it. For cross-play for PS5 and series consoles, I was hoping it would be for PS4 and Xbox One, but it's not. So PS5 to series, PS4 to Xbox One. But I will get you my review of it. Hopefully I get a chance to play with maybe Cooper Hopkins, Alec Nava alongside Nick Edwards. We know we're going to get that in there on that side. If he's going to get that in there, if not, it'll be Cowboys and myself on that end mixed in. So that'll be the window in late July for the NHL 24 beta for opening for sign-up. And then the NHL 24 beta will launch in late August. We'll get that review of it. Hopefully try to get some... Uh, continued uh, group gameplay in there just to let you know what we all think about it and I'll leave that review. That'll be the next time that I will talk to you at worst in the August side of it, but if not for next week we will talk about any NHL uh, other news and we will get you some MLB commentary and everything else for play-by-play and game stories as soon as next week. But this was the State of the Union Address in 2023 Detroit Sports for the Lions, the Tigers, the Red Wings, and the Pistons. We got that all done. Again, if you missed any of it, it'll be on Spotify in the next hour. Peace.